and welcome back to the Gritty Men Podcast. We are here to equip, encourage, and inspire God's men to live God's way for God's glory. Well, today we're going to be talking about a very important uh, topic, and we're going to continue on a little bit with a theme that we've had, but the message that we're going to be looking at today is entitled, The King's Men. The King's Men. The question for us today that I want us to think about um, is in, in understanding our primary responsibility and purpose as men who have been redeemed through the blood of Christ, our primary purpose is to live our lives to the glory of God. Our lives are to give God glory. And so on this podcast, we're going to look at what the Bible teaches about being a king's man, or better, being the king of kings man. And what does that look like? The question is not, are you a kingdom man, but rather, what king and what kingdom do you serve and belong to? For every single man belongs to a kingdom, and every single man is serving a king, whether or not he knows it. There are only two kingdoms, and all men belong to and serve one of these two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness, number one, whose ruler is Satan, also called the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air. And the second kingdom is the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus, whose ruler and king is Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, the redeemer of mankind. Now the reality is, guys, we all at one time, like the rest of mankind, we belonged to the kingdom or the domain of darkness, and we served, whether we knew willingly or not, the prince of the power of the air. We've served Satan. We didn't realize it necessarily. Some do. Many do not. They're living under the shroud of darkness, um, and they served his kingdom and the resulting effect of that was basically death. We were outside of the commonwealth of God, God's people, without God, without hope in this world. We were doing those things that the flesh desired and the flesh wanted. And we were living as kingdom men, but not the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of darkness. That's the kingdom that we were part of. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, Paul writes this, reminding these Christian men, um, where they once were. In chapter 1, he outlines for them, as we're going to see here in a second, all that God has done in bringing about their incredible gift of salvation. In chapters 2, though, he's going to remind them of where they once were prior to coming to faith in Christ, all by a work of God's grace. And he writes these words to these men, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked it's where you live, man. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children or objects of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is where everyone begins. We're all born in Adam. We all sin, and we all experience death. We are separated from God because of sin. We all belonged to this kingdom at one time. But the reality is, for us Christian men, 
We were rescued from the kingdom of darkness and we were transferred to the kingdom of Christ or God in Christ Jesus. We were, we were transferred to the kingdom of God in Christ. In Ephesians 2, now 4 through 9, this is how this took place. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespass, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you have been saved, excuse me. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. The reason today we men are part of the kingdom of God in Christ is because of the the mercy, the grace, and the love of God. That's why we are. God in Christ, he rescued us. He redeemed us by his blood. He cleared us of all, of all charges and all wrongdoing through the sacrificial atonement of Christ. We are justified, set right before God because of the perfect work that Christ completed. And we were adopted as sons, brought into the kingdom, and now we serve a king. And the king whom we now serve and the king in whom we now obey and live for is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It is Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, in which we serve and live and have our being. Colossians 1.13 reminds us of this. Paul does to these, these men in, 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 the, in the church of Colossae. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, I want to read this just kind of setting the framework here. It's a little bit lengthy, so just hang in there. Follow along with me. Listen to this incredible passage of scripture. It is one of my most favorite passages in all of scripture. In fact, I want to encourage you men, if you would, for the next week to every day, read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Read it over and over and over and over again. And it will bless you beyond measure. Listen to these incredible words of the work and plan and desire of God that he fulfilled in Christ for each of us who are the king's men. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he's chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has lavished on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, that's the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. 
You see this over and over. It's all according to the richness of God's grace. It's all according to his desire. It's all according to his forethought and plan. It's all done and by the merit, the grace, the goodness, the love of God. It's all been done for us, and it was done for us in and through Christ by the will of the Father. Continue to listen. In all wisdom and all insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. This is not my purpose. This is not your purpose. These are the purposes of God, which he set forth. This is God's plan. This is God's action. This is God's doing. He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, that is Christ, things in heaven things on the earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. According to the purpose of who? Of God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is not your will. Your will became the will of God when God revealed Christ to you, when he redeemed you, when he is He's justified you. He's forgiven you. He's, in, he's, he's adopted you. you receive, all these incredible things are a result of God's purpose, plan, and desire. Every aspect of this is the reality of this. And this would be first to hope in Christ. Those who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory in Him. Also, when you heard the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, listen to this, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is all for the glory of God. You see the triune Godhead all here actively working to fulfill the will of God the Father. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all involved. Not three gods, one God, three persons, each distinct in their function, each completely God, equal in every single way. And yet they function within the Godhead according to their purpose and we see them actively all involved in bringing about our incredible gift of salvation and all that that means for the king's men. And what a privilege it is for us to be one of the redeemed of the Lord. Listen to this. Now we who were once enslaved to the kingdom and the kingdom of darkness, we have now been set free, guys. We have been purchased. We've been redeemed to God through Christ, the eternal Son, who gave us for himself, and we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, which guarantees all of this to be a reality for us in fulfillment one day. So we have been, been freed excuse me, from slavery to death, and we have been brought to the freedom of Christ. We have been delivered, guys, from the kingdom of darkness under the prince of the power of the air and been brought into, by God's power, the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus un under our redeeming king, Christ the Lord. This is where we now are, located positionally, relationally, 
This is where we are. This is so incredible. I cannot make in any way through communication the magnitude of what it means to be in Christ Jesus. I can't even begin to, with words, explain to you the immense privilege it is to be a king's men, to be the king's men. I can't even explain to you what level of appreciation and gratitude that we as as those who were lost and bound in slavery to sin under the kingdom of darkness and the prince of the principalities of the air what it is for us to be set free from that and brought into the glorious kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ by the will and power and desire of God the Father It is absolutely beyond my ability to not only comprehend it, but to express to you through this microphone the incredible magnitude of what it means to be in Christ. Unbelievable that we are blessed to partake in this incredible gift that we have in Christ. So in Romans chapter 6, 12 through 13, we're reminded here, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, To make you obey its passions, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments instruments for righteousness. And so this is the way in which we live. Our lives now as being those who have been redeemed, who have been brought and transferred and freed from the kingdom of darkness out of gratitude, love, appreciation, and desire for our king. We live for his glory and for his purpose. That is the reality of what it means to be the king's man or one of the king's men. In short, Serve and live for our King, Jesus Christ, and His kingdom, and His priorities, and His desires, and we are to to fulfill those things by walking in obedience to Christ as we fulfill the desire of Christ working through us in this world. You are now, guys, if you are in Christ by faith in Christ, You are now one of the king's men. That is the king of kings and lord of lords, one of his men. Jesus Christ, our king. We belong to the king. Now, let's go back in scripture because sometimes we have a difficult time in understanding this whole king and kingdom mentality because we don't live that way. Yes, we do have a president, um, but he doesn't rule as king. Uh, He has some authority, has some power. It's limited. Um, And so our government is structured in a different way, so we don't fully understand or grasp what it means to be ruled over by a king. Um, If we were to be part of a kingdom where a king ruled over you, whatever the king says, the king does, and the king wants, the king's will is going to be done. Whether or not you like it, it's going to happen. So to be under a good king was a wonderful thing, but to be under an evil king was a very horrible thing. And Israel had both good kings and bad kings within its history. And so let's go back to a time in Israel's history where King David, the second king to rule over them after King Saul, was, um, was not yet made king, but he was chosen by God to replace King Saul 
and God was going to take the kingdom from Saul and he was going to give it to David. And it's very, very um, easy to see that the greatest king to rule over God's nation of people and the Israelites was King David. In fact, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords was promised to come through the lineage of King David. And Christ, we know, came through that lineage. And he is the ultimate king over the nation of Israel and will be one day ruling and reigning upon this earth in the millennial kingdom. And we, as king's men, we will be ruling and reigning with him. So will uh, all of God's uh, elect. They will all be. All of God's children will be ruling and reigning with him on this earth. Not only from the Old Testament and the New Testament, just throughout the history. And there will be those that will be ruled over during the time that Christ rules with a rod of iron. But that's not for this time. King David, the Bible says, this is important. I'm not saying this about the man. This is what God says about the man. We know that King David was a man after God's heart. And this isn't mere speculation. This is what God spoke about David himself. In fact, in 1 Samuel 13, 14, we read these words. But now your kingdom, speaking to Saul, shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul was, was wicked in that. In Acts 13, 22, we read this also, And when he had removed him, that's Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, Who testified and said? This is what God said and testified in relation to David. I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. So David was going to take the next position as king over the nation of Israel, but it hadn't happened yet in this time period that we're going to be looking at. In 1 Chronicles eleven nine. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. All the way back when we see David and he slews, uh, he defeats Goliath, and we see God working in David's life and raising him up, and all that God did throughout the history of developing and growing David and raising him to this position, um, we, we find that um, God's blessing and favor was in the life of David. And men, there is... There's nothing greater than having the blessing and the favor of God in our lives. It's wonderful to have God's favor, and it's wonderful to walk in His blessing. And we do that by living in Christ, living for Christ, and walking in obedience to the Word of God. We receive those blessings that way because God's Word is truth, and when you apply truth, the outcome is the blessing that comes from that truth. When God is for you, who can be against you? And we read about that in, in Romans, in fact. We read Paul the Apostle writing that. I believe it's Romans chapter 8, where he's writing this incredible list of, of, of uh, being in Christ and all that's going on. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and is called according to his purpose. And Paul's going on there. Those he foreknew, he predestined and called and justified. And he goes through the whole list and glorified. And he's got all these incredible truths that he's sharing. And he says, hey, by the way, if God is for you, who can be against you? I want you to think about that. If God, the God of all creation, is ultimately for you, if you walk in his favor and in his blessing, as you walk in obedience to him, 
Who in the world can truly be against you if God is for you? The answer to that question is no one can. No one can. And then Paul goes on and says, so who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? <laughs> There's no one that can do that, right? So um, the fact that God was with David is decidedly the reason that David was so victorious in battle and in achieving such great things. God's blessing was with David. God's favor was with David. God was with David. And men, this is how we want to live our lives. We want to live our lives to the glory of God, for those who live their lives for the glory of God will receive and reap the blessing of God, but also will walk in the favor of God in their life. This is part and parcel of how we become a mighty man of God, and we're going to be looking at these mighty men, the king's men. That's the whole point of what we're going to be learning about here in these, these next few podcasts. Too many men do not include the God factor when they are standing at a crossroads in life. Now, a few uh, weeks ago, I talked about feeling stuck and all of these things about how we get out of being stuck in life. Listen, one of the factors that we never consider when it comes to walking in faith or living a life with risk or moving forward with God is we, we, we must always add in the God factor. And when you add in the God factor, the rest of it is inconsequential because God is he alone is God and can do incredible feats, incredible things that we cannot do. And so we must always figure in the God factor. We can't know the totality of it, but we know if God is for me, who can be against me? And I can walk in confidence when I know that I have the God factor in my life because I'm a child of God. I've been redeemed by God. I'm living in Christ for the king, for the kingdom, and I'm walking in the blessing and the favor of God in my life. Something else that David did that was very, very important, we talked about this on the podcast two weeks ago, I believe, is David surrounded himself with great people. When you look at the, the role and the magnitude of what he was responsible for as the king over a, of a nation of people that God had set him over, that task is too great for any man. No man can do that. So David, he set great men around him. There were many great men around him. And God helped him by these men to be able to do what God had called him to do. And it must have been, if you think about this, an incredible privilege for these men to serve the king of the nation of Israel, the people of God. It must have been incredible to serve this king and to be part of his, his plan and his, his working. And, and all of this is tied with God's will and God's plan and God's direction and protection and guidance over this nation of people. So ultimately, when they were working with David and they were working under David, they were working for God and under God. The umbrella there of God's people, nation, king, and protection and, and blessing, all of that was there. And, and David, he had a small band of inner circle men who played a significant role in his life. They were simply called David's mighty men. There were 37 or so of them that we find in Scripture. Evidently, there were a band of 30. And so there may have been these men were, who were part of this 30 
that either were killed in battle, they died uh, of, of, of sickness or old age, something happened to them. And then David, there would be another man that would have been worthy to step up into this group of 30, and they were added to this group of 30. And so there was a very tight band of these men and David called them in Scripture by name. He gives their name. He gives many of their fathers. He gives the, um, the, the, the tribe or the nation of people from which they came, the location. Um, this was all recorded in Scripture. And David called them his mighty men. And these men made such an impact and contribution to David's life and his legacy, that at the end of his life, he memorialized them, and he listed them by name and sharing some of their great exploits. Now, I'm like you, man, I love to listen to stories of men who have fought valiantly in battle. Those men that were either highly outnumbered or outgunned, uh, they're, they're, the, 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 the cards, if you will, were stacked against them. And these men did incredible feats of, of accomplishing things that were impossible um, in the eyes of men. And yet they displayed great feats of bravery. And um, they were stalwart in their purpose and unflinching. They, they just continued in spite of all that was going on around them. And they did incredible feats. And I would love if I could have a book that would have been recorded with all of these incredible exploits of these mighty men of valor, these amazing men that God gave and surrounded around David. It would have been awesome to hear all that they did throughout their lifetime in serving the king and serving the kingdom. If they could all be recorded, what an incredible book that would be to read and to feast your eyes on and to take in and learn from. But there are a few that we have written for us down in Scripture, and we can learn more about what made these men who and what they are. Something we need to realize and know is that mighty men are not born. They're not born. Mighty men, these mighty men, they were forged through time, through adversity, and through discipline. To be, to be a mighty man, it takes, it, it takes time to grow into that. It takes experience. See, here's the thing. I, I've said this a lot in, my, uh, in these years that I'm in. I love the season of life that I'm personally in. Um, I've now broke over 50 years of age. And I, I often say, man, if I just could have had my mind and my wisdom and hopefully um, my maturity that I have now, I wish I could have had it when I was 20 years of age. But here's the thing, that is impossible because you can only gain maturity, wisdom, and knowledge over a course of time. It's the only way it happens. And so the reason you are where you are now, if you're listening to me and you're, you're in this season of your life, the reason you have the wisdom, the, 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 the um, understanding, the, the knowledge, you have patience, you, know, you have um, maturity, you, you have all of these things and they've been developed in you over a period of time. So God has developed you. 
and he's developing you now. That's why I always tell you, men, if you're in this season of your life, your life's not done. It's just beginning in relation to what you have to offer. And if you study history and know anything about history and the men that made the greatest mark on history, they didn't make the, ma- the greatest mark on history when they were 20 years of age, most of them. They were men in the latter season of their life that made the greatest impact um, on the world. And there's a reason for that because it cannot you cannot get to that place where you have within you the well, if you will, so to speak, to provide all that is needed to accomplish these things unless it's developed in you. And so this is, this is important to understand that and to know that. So if you're a young guy here, listen, you, you operate within the very best you can where you are, but God's not through. Allow God to develop you into the man that he has designed, that he sees, and that he has planned for you in relation to serving him in his kingdom and for his glory. And it begins right now. It begins when our boys are young. If you're a father, begin to develop these things in your sons. Do it young. Do it early. Begin to develop them. Allow these things to happen. Set up things that are challenging for them. Have them learn things. Have them succeed and and fail at things so they're able to learn and grow and gain wisdom. And, and it's, it's important. So here we are. Let's, let's learn here about some of these men. And we're going to read about them in 2 Samuel 23. And we're going to look simply at verses 8 through 12. There's a lot of passages. Excuse me, not a lot. But there's several passages that we can look at. Not only in 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. We got Samuel. We got some other places we can look. But let's look at 2 Samuel 23, 8 through 12. Here's what it says. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Now, this is pretty stinking cool. I'm not going to be able to pronounce their names correctly here, um, but I'll, I'll do the very best I can. And what we're going to be looking at here is simply what were his top three. He had three, if you will, that were above the rest of them. And the first one we meet is a man by the name of Joshib Bashethbath. Joshib Basibeth. There we go. Joshib Basibeth. Okay. It's probably incorrect, but nonetheless, that's his name. Let's just call him Joshib. Okay. So Joshib, it says written here, talks about what he was. He was a Tachmanite, whatever that was. He was chief of the three. So we have the 30 and then we have the three And this man, Joshub, he was chief over the three that were over the 30. And listen to what it says. He welded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. That's an incredible feat. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar. So number one was Joshub. His name is mentioned here. Then we have Eleazar, and he even goes on to tell us that he was the son of Dodo, and, and he's the grandson of Aho, Ahoa. Ahoi is how he pronounced it. So not only do we have his, 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 his name, we have his dad's name, we have his grandfather's name. There's some cool heritage here. He was with David, Eleazar was, when they defied the Philistines, who was this vast army against the people of God, the enemies of God, 
who gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. This is key now. Listen to this. He rose, and he struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord, listen to this, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Now this guy Eliezer, he is in battle with David against the Philistines, and there are a vast number of other men who are fighting on the side of Israel who are with them. But note something about this man, one of the traits and characteristics of this mighty man that separated him from even the 30 mighty men and certainly separated him from the rest of these men. Did you notice something about this section? We are told the other men retreated. They turned around and left. But this man, Eliezer, while others are retreating and running from the battle, Eliezer, he is taking his stand and he grabs his sword and he engages the enemy as vast as it was in battle. Now something is significant here that I need to note. Oftentimes, men, we are guilty of retreating at the moment God is getting ready to do something great and mighty in our midst that we in ourselves cannot do, but we get to be part of. And that can't happen outside of living for the glory and the purpose of following Christ the King. If, if this man did something that, that made him head and shoulders above the rest, and David placed him in his mighty three, his top three of all the men, the fighting men of Israel. Eliezer was number two in this group of three over 30 who were over thousands. And one thing that separated him was that he was willing to take a stand to engage in the battle against the enemy of God when all the others retreated. So you know what? Although he may have appeared to be standing alone and fighting this battle, he was not fighting alone. And what did God do? God came beside him and routed the enemy. And you know what? Eliezer, when it was all over, the dust settled and the swords were laying on the ground. There was a man who was still standing and it was no man of the nation of the Philistines that were fighting that day who were left standing. Only God's man was left standing. Eleazar, when the smoke cleared and the dust settled and the blood stopped dripping on the ground, there was one man left standing, and it was a man that God used and God blessed and God worked through as he routed this mighty army against, against his foes. Eleazar was left standing. And he got to be a part of something great that God did. He didn't do it. God did it. But he was part of it. And he was being used by God. And all around him, the power of God was being displayed. And yet he also gets to enjoy the magnitude of what it means to serve and be a part of a God and a king who is greater than anything that we could ever think, imagine, or understand. That's why he was a great man. But he had to be willing to engage the enemy when everybody else left. God's looking for Eliezer's today. Men who are willing to risk it all for the king and the kingdom. Who ultimately was Eliezer fighting for? 
the people of God and the God of the nation of Israel. And God took notice of this man. This man, Eliezer, was considered number two in the list of three mighty men over 30 over thousands. Next in line, next to him was the man by the name of Shammah. Shammah was a Herite. His father was Agi. The Philistines, were told here, it's written in Scripture for us, gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. So there's a crop here. You know, lentils are great food, high protein. In fact, the gladiators used to eat um, meals of lentils because of the protein uh, and strength it gave them. So these lentils were important to the army of God. They needed food. These lentils were valuable. And here this man is now. He's standing in this ground of lentils. And we have the Philistines that are going to try to take this ground. And it says, and the men fled from the Philistines. Here we go again. Listen. We don't have a shortage of males in the kingdom. There are males in the kingdom who want to carry the banner of Christ, who are living under Christ, but they are not living for Christ. There is a massive difference here. And when the enemy comes and the battle comes, they retreat and they run. Because they're not living for, they're simply living under. But if you're living for the king and you're living for his glory... You're not going to return in retreat. And that's what we find here that's so fascinating about this man, Shama, just like it was at Eleazar and also like Joshub. There's something very characteristically different about these men. But what made them different was who and what they're fighting for and why they are fighting. Why is it that they, when all other men retreat, go to the battlefield? You're going to say, well, because it's just something deep within them, and they were, they were just born with this tenacity. That is absolutely false. That's not true. And you can't look at a man with a great big old beard and big old tattoos and arms and weight lifting, and you can't look at that guy and say, that sucker there, he is gritty and tough, and he's the one that's never going to run in battle. You don't know that till the battle comes. We want to be men like Shammah and like Eleazar and like Joshua. They knew what they were fighting for. They knew their purpose. They knew why. And they also knew that God of the nation of their people was ultimately the one in whose banner they were carrying. Listen to what it says. The men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defe defended it and struck down the Philistines. We're not told how many here, but we know he was highly outnumbered. And listen to what it says. And the Lord worked a great victory that day. Are you seeing a common thread here? If you want to see God do God things, then you're going to have to be willing to risk it and to live for the glory of God. If you want to be in the safety zone, you're not going to get to see these things unfold in your life. So here's three of them. Now, Joshua was chief of the three. That's what he was. Mighty men, guys, they are not born. But mighty men are forged through time, discipline, and adversity. The source of their greatness, 
these men and other men like them, was not found within themselves, but outside of themselves. It is possible for one man to physically, with this, is it possible for one man to kill 800 in battle with his spear? The answer to that question is obviously, absolutely, without question, no, that is not possible. The obvious answer is, God was working in his midst. The Lord brought about a great victory. The Lord brought about a great victory. We want to live where God, if he doesn't intervene, we will, we will not make it. But when we do make it, we understand that God did it and he gets all the glory. It's fascinating to me that we know God gets the glory for this, and yet these men got to walk in the shadow of the glory of God, and because they did, they were considered to be mighty, mighty, mighty men. That's incredible. These men were common and ordinary men. They weren't some superstars but their God made them extraordinary. Don't forget that. Here's 1 Samuel 22, 1 through 2. We're going to read this about these men that gathered themselves around David. You think, well, no, they're, they're, the, they're, the, they're the most um, talented, you know, they're, 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 they're the most, had the most opportunity in life. I mean, they're super this, they're super that. They're, no, listen to me. Let, let's show you these men that came to David when he was actually hiding and running from Saul for his life. Listen to this. 1 Samuel 22, 1 through 2. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. He's hiding out in the cave of Adullam. Uh, Saul is pursuing him. He wants to kill him and take his life. Uh, the people are bragging about David, and they're saying, you know, Saul's killed his thousands, but David has killed tens of thousands. I mean, he, Saul can see what's going on here. The people's attitude towards David is higher than their attitude toward him. He knows that there's something coming here. David will take over the kingdom. And he's going to try to kill him before that happens. And it says, And when his brothers, this is speaking of David, and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone, listen to this, here's another group, and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to David. And he became commander over them, and there, there, and there were with him about 400 men. So what kind of men gathered to David at the cave of Adullam? The distressed, indebted, bittered, embittered in soul. Those are the men who came and gathered to David. These men had great potential, untapped and unknown, until the moment they stayed and fought where everyone else, when everyone else retreated. Listen, the reality is, guys, God knows what is in us because what? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. If we can ever tap into this, if we can begin to understand this, the true reality is the enemy doesn't want you to get this. He doesn't want you to understand this. He doesn't want you to know this. I think about um, Gideon, for example. You know, here's Gideon. He's thrashing wheat. He's hiding out doing it, um, and he's concerned because he doesn't want the enemy to come and take the wheat that he's thrashing, so he's doing it in secret, and the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, and he, he calls out to him, and what does he call him? 
mighty, a mighty man of valor. A mighty man of valor. Gideon's probably like looking around going, who are you talking to? Mighty man of valor. No, the angel says, you, I'm talking to you, man. Mighty man of valor? Gideon didn't perceive himself as a mighty man of valor. And the problem is most Christian men do not perceive themselves to be what God perceives them and knows they have the potential to be. And the enemy would like to keep you from seeing that and understanding that and knowing that. It's in you. Um, because Christ lives in you by his spirit. You are new in Christ. You have, you've been given new life. You have been empowered by the Spirit of God. All of these things you have access to, being a child of God, stepping into a position and access to the throne of God, to be able to pray to God directly, to be able to understand that Christ is interceding for you. He's at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit intercedes for you on behalf of the will of God to be done in your life. You have access to all these things. What is keeping you and holding you where you are? Step out and be and live to be a mighty man of God. Be who God has saved you and redeemed you to be. Be the king's men. Be the king's men. There is a huge difference, guys, between being a man living under the king. There's a lot of guys out there that say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I go to church. Yeah, I profess to faith. Yes, 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 yes. But then there's another group of men who are what? They are living for the king. There is a difference. There are myriads of quote-unquote parentheses around this. Men who are living under the king saying, oh yeah, I believe in that Jesus guy. Oh yeah, I attend church once a, one hour a week. You know what, I pray once in a while. I, uh, yeah, you know, I believe um, I might even read a Bible verse now and then, you know, throw up a prayer every once in a while. Yeah, I, I, I belong to Jesus. I believe in Jesus. There's a stark difference between those kind of men and the very few men who are living for the king. Their life is lived for his glory and for his purpose. Huge difference. Here is the difference. You ready? The, the king's men love the king. These men loved their king. Next week, we're going to look at a story where these three mighty men were with David. And David is whining and complaining and saying, Oh, if I could just have some water from the well of Bethlehem. Oh, I would love to drink water from that well. And the enemy was encamped around the well. These men loved their king so much. These mighty men, they risked their very own life. And they what? They go into the camp. They don't sneak in. They fight their way in. And they make their way to the well. They get some water. You, got, you can just see the picture now. All these enemies are gathered around them. They fight their way to the well. They get to the well. One guy's got his canister. He's lowering it down in the well. The other guys are standing there with their spears, and they're defending the guy. He gets the water, and what do they do? They fight their way back out of the encampment, and they make their way to where David was held up, and they bring their king water from the well 
of Bethlehem. And David is so moved by these men's act of love, he can't even make himself drink the water. Why? Because he realized the display of love and gratitude and loyalty to him was at the expense of them losing their very life that the king poured it out as a sacrifice to God. That's how big David viewed the men's love in their act toward him. The king's men, number one, guys, love their king. We love Christ. Number two, the king's men were loyal to their king. Our king, Christ Jesus, he is the perfect king. David was not a perfect king. In fact, at the list of the mighty men, at the very end, there's a man whose name is listed by the name of Uriah. This is after David did all that he did. Listen to this. At the very end of David's life, he memorializes these men. And at the list that he gives, there's about 37 men total in there. And what's fascinating, the very last one that David writes down, he gives the name of Uriah. Do you remember who Uriah was? Uriah was one of the mighty men of David. And he was off to battle. And David is not out at war with his men. In the springtime when the kings would go off to war, that's where David should have been. He should have been out with his men. David stayed home. His men went out to fight. He's in the comfort of his palace. And instead of doing what men should do, engaging in battle, protecting the kingdom, and leading his men, and fighting with his men, David stays home. And what does he do out of the boredom of what he should not have been doing? He's out on his rooftop at night, and guess what he finds himself doing? Here he is, scamming over the houses below his palace, and he notices, mm-hmm, mm, there is Bathsheba. She's one fine-looking woman. The only problem is, David knew Bathsheba because one of his mighty men was married to her. Do you know who was married to Bathsheba? Uriah. David calls for her, has sex with her. She becomes pregnant. Now David's got a problem. David calls for her husband to leave the, the war to come home. David's going to work this plan out. He's going to make him think that he'll bring him home. He'll sleep with his wife. She'll become pregnant, according to what he thinks. Whole problem solved. Secrets covered up. No one's going to know. Remember, the king's men were loyal to the king. So he comes home. David says, here you go. I need you to go back. Why don't you wash your feet at your house? In other words, go spend some time at home, man. You've earned it. And he sends a gift along the way. And what does Uriah do? Uriah stays the night not at his house with his wife, which I'm sure he wanted to be there. But his loyalty to his men and loyalty to be what it meant to be a warrior, 
he could not allow himself to go be with his wife in the comfort of his home, enjoying her affection and love when the men that he loved and were fighting with, they were still on the front lines. So he slept at the door of the palace. David, he can't believe this. He hears this. He tries one more time, doesn't work. So what does David do? He sends a letter with Uriah. Now, this is crazy. And it writes in this letter, Uriah is carrying his own death sentence. And he writes to Abner, the commander of his army, to go ahead and, and, and move Uriah where the fighting is the fiercest. And when Uriah is there and he's in battle, David knew this about this man because he's so loyal. He knew that when he had the rest of them pull back, guess what man would not leave the war and the battle? The mighty man that separated him from all the other men. David knew this. He's a warrior to the core. He's loyal to the king and to the cause. He would not leave. And guess what Abner did? Abner, the commander, out of his love and loyalty for David, didn't even tell Uriah anything. He set him up, and when the fighting was the fiercest and where it was the hottest, he called back the men to retreat and left Uriah high and dry. And guess what Uriah did? He went down fighting. David did this. That's incredible, isn't it? The king's men were loyal to their king. Are you loyal to your king? Do you love? No, I mean, do you love your king? Number three, the king's men served first their king and the kingdom. The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Are you serving first the king and his kingdom? These men would be gone from, from their wives, from their children for months, sometimes years throughout the lifetime of their kids' lives, following the orders of the king, protecting the kingdom, warring against the enemies. They did it because they served first the kingdom. The fourth thing is the king's men, they would risk it all for the king. They risk it all for the king. Number five, the king's men gave their lives for their king. And I can share lots of examples of this, but this is a reality. Um, these were some of the things that separated these men from others. They loved their king. They were loyal to their king. They served first their king and his kingdom. They risked all for their king, and they gave their very lives for the king. These men, the Bible says about them, listen to this, they were skilled. We'll look at this next week. Not going to get into it, but they could fight with either hand. They were skilled with their weaponry. They were brave, courageous men. They were gritty. They were selfless. They were disciplined. They were loyal. They were obedient. 
unrelenting warriors. These men ran to the battle, not from the battle. They stood often alone or side by side, often highly outnumbered. Yet God honored their willingness, their obedience against all odds and brought a mighty victory, allowing these men to do mighty, mighty feats. Because of these attributes, these men, they rose to the place and title given by their king, simply the mighty 30. The mighty 30. There were thousands of men living under King David, but only a few were living for King David. There are hundreds of thousands of men who say they belong to the kingdom of God in Christ, but only those who live for King Jesus will ever truly find purpose and experience God's greatness working through, around, and for them as they live and serve the King for the glory of His name. Guys, I want to encourage you in this to be one of the king's men. I want to greatly encourage you to love the king and to not only love the king, but to be loyal to our King Jesus, to serve first Christ in his kingdom, to be willing to live a life with risk in order to follow and serve and obey the king and give your life, give your life, not necessarily physically, but to give your life to the king. Take out a piece of paper metaphorically and a pen and give your life to the king and let him write the incredible exploits of what he will do in the life of a man who is fully, wholly surrendered to him, who is living for his grace, by his grace, and for his glory. Guys, I want to encourage you in this. If you know anybody that could be beneficial, could benefit, excuse me, from listening to this particular message or podcast, would you please share it with anyone that you know that might, um, might be encouraged by it? Thank you for giving your time today. Um, I'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, down below is a link. You can contact me. Um, if you need for someone ever to come and you want me to speak at a men's conference, um, I do that. Um, I've got materials that I've written. I've got all kinds of stuff that we can, we can do to encourage men. That's what this podcast is all about, equipping, encouraging, and inspiring God's men to live God's way for God's glory. God bless you guys. Uh, we'll see you next time here on the Gritty Men Podcast.